Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, 
Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. The New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father, for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, help us to make the connection between the gospel and life. We really do want to live and work to your praise and glory, as has been demonstrated this morning. We want to be more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, the Israel Falau Instagram thing and that's what it is, by the way, a thing, has been fascinating to watch hard, sad, but fascinating, really, in terms of the intersection of Christian theology in a post-Christian society. I mean, there's discussions to be had about insensitivity. Uh, there's discussions to be had about whether or not a meme, an Instagram post, can actually truly articulate uh, some complexities in Christian theology. And there's discussions to be had, of course, about uh, his contract with Rugby Australia. But from my point of view, all these commentators popping up, being forced to, in some sense, conclude an answer to the question, does God judge people? That's what they're interacting with. Does God judge people? Is there, for example, an eternal consequence for not repenting of being a liar? Does lying matter to God? What about being a thief? Does God care about that? Or is being a thief okay as long as there are no significant consequences for people around you? Can you, for example, commit adultery, ruin a family, and God goes, that's fine by me. I've got no opinion about that. Can you, for example, sleep with whomever you like and when you like? Or does God notice that? Does he judge that sort of behaviour? Now, obviously, with that post from Izzy, there was one particular very vulnerable group, young men and women in rugby, for example, with same-sex attraction, and there, no doubt, needs to be genuine pastoral care in that space. And yet, from my point of view, watching all these commentators who don't believe in God, they don't believe in salvation, they don't believe that God bears teeth in judgment, they certainly don't believe in grace to sinners like me. They're all 
arriving to, to say to the clean living, if not theologically strange, Falau, you're the sinner here. Don't you think that's interesting? You're the sinner here. You're the one that needs to repent. Qantas is the new judge. And if you don't repent, you won't be saved. If I can put it this way, by Rugby Australia, you'll be cast out. Now, there's a lot of irony in all of this. This, of course, is the new religious landscape of Australia. There are new judges, and there's hell to pay as well, in this case, being cast out from the game. My favourite, as always, was Peter Fitzsimons in the Sydney Morning Herald, referencing Israel Folau's list. He talks about playing Izzy Bingo. Easy bingo, which is ticking off how many times you'd be heading to hell based on Falau's Instagram. You know what the Instagram said? Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters. Hell awaits you unless, of course, you come to Christ and repent. Fitzsimons writes this. He writes, so how'd you go with easy bingo? How'd you go? He writes, I think over the course of my life, I'm batting five, maybe six, although I had to look up what idolater was. Meantime, can anyone out there claim eight? And can anyone claim none? Yes, yes, he writes, apart from you, I mean, Prime Minister. <laughs> if anyone can claim none, might I gently suggest that you need to get out more? No, Fitz. No. The answer is not to get out more. And of course no one makes it. Anybody who understands a modicum of Christian theology will say, no one makes it. We all fail. Izzy bingo. That's the point of the Christian gospel. And so you and I, we need to come up against the, both the holiness and the grace of God more than we currently do. And then see if we do so, if God begins to transform lives in Jesus Christ. And that's what our text is about this morning. This ancient text, Genesis chapter 9. The Lent series, of which this was meant to be the last one, but we picked up again after Easter on April 28. Thanks for letting me be away last week. I'm still healing. The Lent series is called Six Rules for Work and Life, not in the sense of rules to be obeyed, but rather the sense of principles that make sense of what we do. This morning, it's the third part of the story of Noah, a bit you didn't think should exist. And the rule for work and life is don't let alcohol destroy your life. So we're going to do one more after Easter, but today is Palm Sunday. Paul read it out a moment ago, the week before Jesus died, where in that city of Jerusalem, Jesus entering that town on the donkey, there was so much promise the city hailed him as a king, but so little follow-through. The same city nailed him within a week. But he went to the cross, and this is good news for sinners like me and Noah. So each week in Lent, page 8, we're answering the same three questions. What is this ancient narrative, Genesis 9? How is it fulfilled in Jesus, who gives life? And what is the rule for life and living? So first, see, what is this strange narrative? Genesis 9 is post-flood. The flood has washed away all the evil, at least that's what we were hoping. 
One family, Noah's, has been raised above it, resurrected in the ark by the grace of God. And here we are, Genesis 9, on the other side. What's next? Genesis 9 is what's next. And what's next is Noah gets drunk. And his family is ripped apart for thousands of years. Chapter 9, verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When When he drank some of the wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in, inside his tent. It's a lack of dignity that comes often with the con- consumption of alcohol. That was a neat little story up until this point. <laughs> you know, people are bad, you know, but the good guy wins. But Genesis 9 tells you that sin isn't swept away by mere water. Someone else will have to do that And he, Jesus Christ, will do this thousands of years after this event. But I want to point out to you that Genesis 9 has everything in it for a modern society. I don't know if you felt that as it was read out to you a moment ago. Genesis 9 touches on, but does not answer, seven, count them, seven 21st century hot topics in our society today. You and I would live in a very complicated world as the easy thing shows. And this chapter touches on seven of the things you worry about. But there's one thing in the middle of the chapter, a promise, a covenant that speaks to and helps us in our complicated world. We hold on to his promises. So seven hot topics, seven hot potatoes, I want to show you them and make a brief comment about each one. Now, this is going to be inherently dissatisfying. You're going to get the little comment card out and you're going to sort of complain to me or write to me in an email, but I want interaction with you. Here are seven hot topics in Genesis chapter 9. In verse 1, which is on page 6 of your orders of service, in in verse 1, Genesis 9 touches on Population growth. God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And yet, verse 1 is not there to address questions about population size in Australia in the 21st century. Its purpose here is to say that there's a new start after the flood, like there was a beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There has been a death and a resurrection in the flood. And what was said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 is now being said to Noah and his family. Fill the earth, start again. So there's a first hot topic, population growth. In verse 2, Genesis 9 touches on vegetarianism and our relationship with animals, which I assure you is going to hot up in the next 50 years. Genesis 9, verse 2, they, the animals, are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. And yet I do not believe that this is a mandate to destroy the animals. The context of verses 2 and 3 are stewardship, faithful stewardship, 
of the earth. It's not a mandate to abuse the animal kingdom, but rather you are free to use them for food. Some have used verses 2 and 3 as an argument for vegetarianism because they appear to be vegetarians before this moment and then now they're eating meat. But I don't think so. Meat here is a gift in this moment, not a curse. And there are indications that they were eating meat beforehand. But I do believe that verses 2 and 3, along with all verses about filling the earth, subduing it, are meant to be read alongside the verses about careful stewardship and, in fact, sensible sustainability. Right there, you're on livestock, uh, um, etc. In verse, uh, verse 6, Genesis 9 touches thirdly on capital punishment, because it wasn't enough. In a series of verses about the consequences for sin, God says, verse 6, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, a life for a life. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. So there is a justification there for capital punishment, but I do not believe that it is a blank check to introduce capital punishment into a secular society. Now, this is obviously a huge issue, and I remember the first time I heard a Christian say to me that God approved in principle of capital punishment, and I was like gobsmacked. It took me like six months to figure it out when I was about 16, 17 years old. But notice here in verse 6, there's no doubt that God approves of capital punishment in principle, not because life is cheap, but because people are so precious. For the image of God, God has made humankind. And yet, I'm married to an American, I have American children, dual citizens, but I personally agree with Australia's take on this matter, namely that capital punishment, even if you could prove that in principle it is permitted, in my mind, in practice, it's too complicated. Now, I'm not a decision maker here. If I wanted to be a decision maker, I should run for parliament, but I'm not in parliament. I personally agree with Australia's take on this, that in practice, capital punishment is too complicated. The politics of it all, the racial issues, and the fact that human beings simply do not have all the information. I say, let God take a life. He can judge people, and he can do it into eternity. Fourthly, in verses 14 through 17, Genesis 9 touches on the rainbow as a symbol, as if the chapter didn't have enough current issues. Chapter 9, verse 13, God says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring the clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and all living creatures of every kind. Rainbows, of course, are a symbol, for obvious reasons, for many people, in many cultures of different things. An example would be in the new South Africa, post-apartheid, it became a symbol of racial harmony. But if you live here in Sydney and you've been here for 20 years, it's now a symbol of the LGBTQI plus community. It's to drive down Oxford Street. I find it interesting that beer, wine, spirits, BWS, have actually changed their marketing 
on Oxford Street to include their symbol, alcohol, as a rainbow. You think about that. So it's a symbol here in Sydney for many people, perhaps most people of that particular community. But it's worth saying, not for God. For God, it's a reminder to him. See, who's the bow, the rainbow, a symbol for? Not for humans. It's a symbol for God, not for us. It's a reminder to God that when he sees the bow in the clouds, he will remember not to flood the world like this again. That's important to say, by the way, the word rainbow is our English word that translates what's being said there, which is a bow. My children have weapons. What are you going to do? This is a bow, a bow and arrow, of course. And what's being said here is, I have set my bow in the clouds. It's not black like this is, but colourful. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow, the bow appears in the clouds, I'll remember the covenant between you and me and all living creatures of every kind. The rainbow here is a bow, only full of colour. And he's put his bow... down, you see. He is no longer at war with his creatures in this same way. In verse 5, if that wasn't enough, in verses, sorry, in verses 20 to 23, Genesis 9 deals with alcohol abuse, current, very current in our society now. Do Australians drink too much? How do we feel about that? It deals with alcohol abuse and its long-term effects on the family. Noah gets drunk and is found naked, just like Adam and Eve after his sin. One son, Ham, it's hard to know exactly what the problem is, and commentators disagree, but he effectively gloats over his dad's naked body, which is going to be important for Israel's history with its neighbours. We'll come to that in a moment. But he looks or gloats over his dad's naked body. But remember that dad's the one that's got drunk, such as the nature of alcohol. But the two other sons, Shem and Japheth, they took a garment, lovely image, laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards, and then they covered their father's naked body. Even in his sin, they treated him with some respect. Alcohol is huge in our society, in our culture, and it can destroy your life and the lives of those around you. And I'll offer a few thoughts about that in a few moments' time. As if that wasn't enough, verse 25, slavery is there not condoned, but a fact in a sinful world. And from verse 24, Genesis 9 deals with Zionism, place of Israel, amongst its surrounding nations. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, not from his sleep, and found out that his young, what his younger son had done to him, gloated over his naked body, he says, effectively, this is going to be the pattern of the nations surrounding the sons that will come from you, the sons and daughters that will come from you for the next 1,000 years. Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. But he also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. You notice the ugliness here? He gets drunk and then outlines the pain that will happen to his family and the nations surrounding um, Israel for the next three millennia. 
because Ham gazed over the naked body, some comments are made about the way Israel will be treated in the millennia to come. And you need to know this from verse 19. The idea is that Hem, Shem, Shem and Japheth, uh, from them become all the peoples who are scattered over the whole earth. Ham will produce the Canaanites, which sets up the conquest, as well as Egypt, Exodus, Philistia, David, Assyria and Babylon, every nation that gloats over Israel's naked body. Verses 24 to 27 aren't like I do with my kids, you know. Hey, you did the wrong thing, here's your punishment. Is actually trying to frame up Israel's history that leads to the cross of Jesus Christ. Shem will produce Israel, who will inherit the promises of God, and Japheth will produce Greece and modern Turkey, where the gospel will go first from Jesus to the world. So there you have it, hot topics. Everything is there for you <laughs> to ponder. This could be seven different sermons treating all of these topics seriously. But in all the confusion of life now, all our confusion is this simple promise right in the middle of it, this simple covenant that through the descendants of Shem, a promise will be made from God to the world. He, won't not, he will not abandon this world to the flood. He won't flood the world the same way. Verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons with them, I will establish my strong promise with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. Through your descendants, I will wrought forgiveness and grace for the entire world. And all the nations will be involved. Read the history of Israel. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant, my strong promise with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the earth. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then a sign. A bow laid down, no longer pointing at sinful humanity, a sign in the sky of grace. Secondly, how is this narrative fulfilled in Jesus who gives life? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He's the goal of the covenants. Jesus shows us the grace of God. Jesus is the bow put down. He is the son of Shem, the meek one who will inherit the earth. And in him is the ark of safety from the wrath and judgment of God. There's parallels between Genesis 9 and Palm Sunday or Genesis 8 and Palm Sunday. There seems so much promise in this new world, seems so much promise in the city of Jerusalem, but the same city that held him king would nail him within a week to the cross. But Jesus went to Jerusalem in the midst of all the hoo-ha of Israel and its nations surrounding him because he knew that just like Noah, we need not just water, but fire. We need the presence of God's Spirit in our life. You and I, as well as Noah, we need a true Saviour. That Saviour's name is Jesus Christ. In his death, he experienced the ultimate flood of judgment, all the sin, all the muck, my muck, all the injustice, all the stubbornness, all the evil. Jesus dealt with it, which is why he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet in his resurrection, we have an ark, a box. He rose up again, above sin and death, and with him hope rising, so that the sons of Shem, Israel, could experience the same grace and forgiveness, access to the father of the sons of Ham, the daughters of Japheth, in him, Jew and Gentile alike, in the ark called Jesus Christ. The Old Testament will be filled with the nations fighting Israel, with Egypt and Assyria and the Philistines and 
the Babylonians would gaze on the naked body of little Israel and gloat in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. I think there's a reference to the words of Noah to his sons when God says to Babylon, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring out from the wineskins until they are drunk. It's a metaphor, you see, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies and laugh at them. But in the end, it won't be the Gentiles alone that will mock Israel, but Jew and Gentile alike would gaze on Jesus Christ, naked on the cross, not for his own drunkenness, but for my drunkenness, you see, my sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve hell fits. But, but God would put his bow down in the cross of Jesus Christ, not a reminder to us of his promises, not primarily, perhaps secondarily, but as a reminder to God that he is the kind of God that shows mercy. And here's my advice to you, if the rainbow worries you, don't get too protective of it. Don't worry about it. It's not your rainbow, it's God's. You don't need to take it back for Christian Australia, for Christendom, it's not your sign. It's a sign for God to remind him to be gracious to you. Drive down Oxford Street with new eyes and pray for yourself first. The flood, of course, did not wipe away sin. Noah's drunkenness proves that. No, the human heart is the problem. Only Jesus can deal with the human heart. Let him fill your life with his fire. We need a saviour. So thirdly and finally, what's this rule for life? And the rule for life, I could have chosen many things, but here it's don't let alcohol destroy your life. There's something very simple in this passage. Noah gets drunk. and That's a problem. And it hurts his family and generations to come. Such is the cycle. Alcohol is a tricky business like most addictions. Like pornography, it's tricky. Like gambling and like screen time. Alcohol is a tricky business. Alcohol is a gift from God, fruit of the vine. Jesus turns water into wine. And yet a gift so easily abused... Australia has a problem with alcohol, I think. But I don't think we've yet come to terms with it, although some people are saying as much now. We just think it's larrikin, but some of us need to be liberated. The late Sam de Brito, a journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, got very frank about alcohol in his life, and it ruined his life in the end. He wrote in March 2011, he wrote of the excuse, I was drunk, but I didn't mean it. He writes, how many times have you heard that pearl of abnegation, denial? Poor behaviour, hurtful comments, general rooting around, and minus violence can all be washed away, we think, with the claim that it wasn't the real me, I had too much to drink. When I'd argue, he says, the exact opposite, drunkenness is our purest self. Now, I don't agree, by the way, for anybody in Christ, but it's interesting. Alcohol is just one of the three A's that commonly dissolve our social restraint, the others being anger, that's the real you, 
and anonymity. I do what I want away from the gaze of others. De Brito eventually died from a drug overdose in 2015. The Reverend Richard Johnson was the chaplain of the First Fleet and he knew that alcohol has always been a problem in Sydney from the first days. He writes, I beseech you, sisters, brethren, brothers, suffer this word of exhortation. Hear me. Your souls, he writes, are precious. They're precious in the sight of God. In the image of God, he created humankind. They are precious to the Lord Jesus Christ, bought with his precious blood. They are precious in my esteem. I genuinely care for you. Oh, that you yourselves were equally sensible of their valuable value. You go out and look at Sydney on a, fri- a Friday night or a Saturday night and ask yourself the question, are they, do they know what worth they are? Do they know how valuable they are? We do not treat our bodies or our souls with respect, and neither did Noah that day. A couple of things to do. Number one, it's important to say that for some... Alcoholism is an addiction attached to DNA handed down from a father or a mother. It's worth just saying that there are some people who will deal with this addiction the way they'll deal with another addiction. You may, in fact, die with it. And it's going to be about managing. I understand that. I love Psalm 103, for God knows how we were formed. He remembers that we are dust. But we need to admit it. If you know you drink too much, you need to say, I drink too much. And if somebody tells you, don't get defensive. Recognize its effect on those around you. See, this is all in the alcoholic's manual. Is it disengaging you from family or making you more angry? It could go both ways. But take your sin to the cross of Jesus Christ like you take all your sins to the cross of Jesus Christ. Drunkenness, the state of being drunk and then justifying it, is a sin that needs the grace of God. And you've got the grace of God in an eternal Father. This is not in my notes, and my dad is not here, is that right? My father here? Okay. Um, When I was about 15 years old, we were camping at Burrow Lake at a campsite and there was a uh, New Year's Eve party and I went to the party and at about quarter past 12 my father came to find me and he found me sitting, as with other people, around probably a thousand beer bottles and I hadn't drunk anything, I didn't like beer at that stage. I don't think I even noticed what was going on around me, I was 15 years old, but there I was in the gutter and my father came over and said, are you okay? And he picked me up by the arm and took me back to the campsite popped me in bed, which is a strange thing to do because I was 15 years old. It's not like I didn't know how to do that. And he said to me, you know where the bathroom is? I said, of course I do. Don't even know what you're talking about. About two hours later, it dawns on me that my father believes I'm profoundly drunk. But I saw in that moment how he would treat me if I was. Not with a hand of aggression or judgment, but with sheer grace, I knew how he'd treat me. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we were formed, he remembers that we are dust, who likes the fruit of the vine. And in Christ, as with all addictions, we need to replace it over time. And for some of us, it's going to take time. 
with God's presence alive in your life. That's the point of Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to broken relationships. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Replace alcohol with God. And how do you do that? For Paul, it's very simple. It's in community, in worship, with a heart of thankfulness. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs for the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Community, worship, and thankfulness. I know that it seems simple to those who are struggling with an addiction. You know, one beer a night in your teens becomes two beers in your 20s, becomes three beers in your 30s, and four beers in your 40s, and so it goes on. It's very hard to break. I do not believe that the answer for everyone is abstinence, although it might be for some. I certainly don't think the answer is prohibition and newspapers waving their fingers at us. Governments can't touch hearts. I do think the answer is from within, a renewed heart in Christ, in that ark, safe in the grace of God. It's replacing one desire, the deadening of the senses through alcohol, with another, an awakening of life in the Spirit of God. Do not get drunk with wine then, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, and giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are complicated issues at play um, in our lives. We are but dust and life is complicated and um, habits form and are hard to change over time. But you are with us still. Your promise, your covenant guides us and we have hope in him. Christ died for us, we live safe in his grace. And so we're confident to confess our sins, which I'm going to do for us. And you might like to say amen as I pray this prayer of confession in the hope of receiving, in the knowledge of receiving forgiveness in his name. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You've put down that bow in the sky. But we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and we turn away from them this morning. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.